Welcome back to Hope Part 2, now with 20% more hope. Um, we're going to start, and I'm going to read a quote that says, um, maybe, we think it's attributed to Augustine. We couldn't find any hard sources. So I'm going to read this, and then we'll kind of get jumping into our further discussion of how hope is lived out. Um, Augustine probably said, Hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are, and courage to see they do not remain the way they are. Um, I'm going to consult my, my patron, St. N.T. Wright, again a little bit this morning. Um, in his introduction to the book, Surprised by Hope, at the beginning he says there are two basic questions he wants to answer about hope in the book. Um, the two questions are this. What is the ultimate Christian hope? As in, what is the thing that we hope for ultimately, in the end, once everything is reconciled? And then what hope is there for change, rescue, transformation, new possibilities within the world, in the present? So two questions. What do we hope for eventually happens, and what do we hope for now? Last week I talked about how hope, Christian hope as the virtue, has an object, has a thing upon which we hope. And that's the resurrection, the restoration of the world. That's the thing that we look forward to. And so... Wright says, that's the ultimate hope, but then what hope is there now? And here's one thing he says to these two questions, and that's as long as we see Christian hope in terms of going to heaven, of a salvation that is essentially away from this world, the two questions are bound to appear as unrelated. And this introduces my two favorite theological words smashed together, inaugurated eschatology. I love those words a lot. Um, all they really mean, eschatology is a study of last things. So if you went to a place like Moody Bible Institute and you studied eschatology, that's when you talk about the rapture and how to split up seven years into bits. That's eschatology. Or maybe you talk about it in a different way. But eschatology is a study of last things. Inaugurated eschatology, though, is in what way does that hope, does that thing happen now? How is it already happening now? And this, I think, has to be at the root of what our hope is, is some form of an inaugurated eschatology, some way in which those two questions, ultimate hope and what hope do we have now, in what ways are those related? In what ways does the not yet become already? And the way we live and the way we act as Christians has to assume that those two things are two things that have some sort of connection, not that there's a way we live now and then at the end, God wipes everything away and there's something totally different later. Because that wouldn't match what Paul talked about when he talked about the resurrection, right? He says Jesus was resurrected, and we can look at the resurrected Jesus and say there's something there that we believe in. We talked last week about how faith is the thing we know and hope's the thing we, we want to happen. We have faith in the resurrection of Jesus, and so we have hope in our own resurrection. Jesus being the first fruits of the life of the world to come means that we expect something about that to be happening to us eventually and maybe even now. Um, are you guys with me so far? Does that make sense? Are you utterly convinced of all of my rhetoric? Okay. Um, that's what I needed, needed to hear. Some affirmation that I'm right. That's all, that's all I'm here for. And so um, for this first half, what I want to talk about is how we live out hope. Um, what does hope look like in mission? And I think that's how we hope. I think the way that the church as a body shows that we hope in a life of the world to come is by hoping through how we act and how we reach out to the world. Assuming that 
God is in the business of restoring all things. God desires for all things to be restored. He started that restoration in the resurrection of Jesus. And so now we start to do things pointing in that direction. Um, We start to do things that say, that's where our ultimate hope is, and we're going to have some of it now. We're going to keep those two questions related. You guys may remember last week, Joy pointed out a helpful boundary markers for hope, right? We talked about presumption and despair on either side. That hope somewhere lives in this tension between despair and presumption. So I want to talk about maybe those two guardrails in relation to the mission of the church. Um, The first guardrail we might call despair, or who cares, we can't do anything until Jesus returns anyways. Um, We experience this a lot, right? Like when when we try and do things as a church and we experience pitfalls, we think... I could never do anything anyways. Maybe what we really should have done all along as a church is to just worship together and be an island of refuge for people. Um, Maybe as a church, all we can really hope for is that we can keep ourselves and maybe our children safe from the unceasing tide of the world that tries to destroy us. Um, That seems to me despair. That seems to say there is no already of the life of the world to come. We just have to kind of make it until the life of the world to come. Um, And uh, this story is, I am told, not made up. Um, Joy has experienced this in person. There's a way this is manifest, and that's the question about, do we recycle? Because here's the thing. If Jesus is going to come, burn the whole world away anyways, and install new trees, who cares if our trees die? Who cares about the Amazon rainforest if God's going to come and wipe it all away, right? Well, then maybe people respond with, well, God tells us to, so I guess we have to take care of the earth. And then you get this weird missiology, this weird view of the world where because now and later are unrelated, it doesn't matter what we do now. But Jesus tells us we should, so I guess we have to, but whatever. It's like, it's like Calvinist evangelism, right? Like you're either predestined or you're not. But I've got to tell you, but the Bible tells me I have to preach to you, so I guess I will. But it doesn't matter because you're either predestined or you're not. Um, for what it's worth, I had a discussion about predestination with my high schoolers a few weeks ago. They did not like that idea, let me tell you that much. Um, but do you see how when we, when we separate the two questions or when we become in despair about what God will do now, our mission will reflect that whether we like it or not. How we go out and reach the world, how we care about creation, how we care about broader systems that exist within the world, how we care about people starts to become this sort of like, well, everything's going to hell in a handbasket anyways, so whatever, I'm good. Let's just keep on going. Um, Have you guys ever witnessed that happen, where you've seen people who's, who's pushing eschatology to the later and never the now has crept into their mission? Have you guys ever seen that happen other than people? The story is people who like, legitimately didn't recycle, and they said, it's just going to bring Jesus back faster if the world is destroyed. Like, this is a thing that real people say because their eschatology is so not inaugurated that they say, like, whatever, who cares? Um, has anybody experienced this before? Is this like a one-off situation that, that has only happened to, to my immediate family and no one else's? <laughs> yeah, Christy. Mm-hmm. Because it was all going to turn out perfectly for the 
Yeah, because it, it's weird that that's a, a thing, that God made a good earth. That we read in Romans last week, the whole earth groans in these pains of childbearing, and we're like, well, let's, I guess not recycling is the Pitocin of the, <laughs> of the resurrection. Like, let's just, let's, just, let's just get this move in here. It's taken too long for Jesus to come back. This is getting recorded. I feel less and less comfortable about my jokes as we go. Anybody, or has anybody seen the reverse, where they've seen people in the face of despair continuing to go on, even though it seems like all hope is against them? Yeah. About what? About uh, no care for the environment so that we can hasten second coming. So you've never experienced firsthand, but enough people have told you that people don't recycle, that it must be out there. Must be. If, if someone said it on the Internet, it must be true, right? Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> because, because me and Jesus can have a time with my Bible independent of the rest of you guys because you're all a liability because no one's going to bomb me at my home Bible study. You, you would assume. Yeah, and I think, I think the witness of Christians in the Middle East, and actually, um, since he's not here, I can talk about him. Matt Milliner did a talk in the theology conference uh, on Friday about um, ecumenism and art and things like that, and he talked about the branches of the church um, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, and the Protestant. But then he mentioned how in the last few years we've suddenly been reintroduced to our Coptic brothers and sisters who split from us at the Council of Chalcedon, but now we're recognizing them as martyrs because we see what they do. And the kind of hope you have to have to be a Christian in the Middle East and continue. Um, I mean, you've ever heard any stories from Canon Andrew White talking about people getting baptized and recognizing that it's their death warrant that they're signing when they become baptized. That shows a certain degree of hope that they say, we're still going to meet together and worship because we assume that God is involved in this project. Um, people talked a lot when I was at Moody now a decade ago, all of our missions conferences, people talked about the 1040 window, that section of the Middle East in which there's almost no Christianity and the missionaries who go there and report these amazing stories of God working um, because they assume God really loves these people God can actually change people. God can actually change an area no matter how terrible we might think it looks. And since God can do that, we must go anyways. Um, that's a remarkable expression of hope. Any mission work really is an assumption that God might work even though it seems like it might not be the case. Um, missionaries in Europe often talk about this society in which there used to be this Christian heritage, but there's not anymore. And it's like going to a country that's never heard the gospel. And yet they, they continue to preach, and they continue to, to go there and love people and do mission work, even though they have gains that, according to our sort of megachurch model, seem minuscule, right? Like, we, we see megachurches where a 1,000 people get baptized on a Sunday, and then, like, three people get baptized in France, and we're like, this is awesome. And that's hope. That, that's the seed of hope saying that this matters, that even every little bit in which God fulfills that, prayer that we ask him every Sunday, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. When that overlapping happens at all, that's hope. That's hope living out. Um, 
we talked, I'm trying to think of when I, I recently talked with the youth group about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We talked about this last week. Or Hananiah, Azrael, and Mishael, right? Okay. I want to make sure I get that right. Um, again, they express this hope. In the face of martyrdom, they essentially say, maybe I'll die, but that doesn't matter because I hope in God anyways. Does that make sense? Is that... So that's despair on one side. On the other side, though, is, is presumption, or I will single-handedly renew the world all by myself. Um, I, was, uh, I was shown a, a quote as part of an article that I think is like not published yet, so I'm not allowed to talk about the quote explicitly right now. Anyways, in, in it, the, the person was saying, oftentimes people who talk about bringing in the kingdom, this big flowing language, the kind of stuff that I'm using of like ushering in the kingdom and the kingdom will come and with these little outposts of the kingdom, this is great. It's always abstract because it rarely ever deals in reality. It's always great bleeding heart liberal ideas. I count myself in that group. This sort of bleeding heart, everything will be made better. We'll all get together and, and help the world. And then it never does anything because it's all just a swell idea. It never has to interact with the difficulties of like real life getting your arms dirty mission work. And I think that's the kind of false presumption that we say, God, I know how you want to do this. And so I'm going to start doing this and I'm going to start telling everybody about it and I'm going to presume that you're going to be involved in this. And I'm going to presume that we can do that. It would be like us saying, well, we'll just stamp out homelessness in Wheaton. We're just going to do it. Let's just do it next week. Um, it's the kind of thing that preaches real well, right? Like, that sounds really good from up there. And then on Monday, it actually becomes really difficult to, to do anything about it. Um, it's where compromise has to actually happen. Um, for those of you who, who read the the endo novel Silence. I think the end of that novel where, where a priest is faced with this difficulty of mission work and this difficulty of mission work in a culture that seems to not accept him has to face what the potentials of compromise. It's an incredibly challenging passage. Um, but I think what it forces us to encounter is our ideal version of how we think Jesus is going to come and the reality on the ground and we have to reconcile those two. Palm Sunday is the best week to talk about this, right? We're, we're reenacting Jerusalem welcoming in Jesus as king, as the type of king that he's not. <laughs> They're welcoming him in as the triumphant military king. And he's, as we know, nothing of the sort. So presumption sort of faces us and says, or, or the danger is, maybe, maybe God's not going to do it the way you want. And maybe God's going to do it in a messier way than you think. And maybe God's going to do it in a way that's different than you think. And maybe we have to be humble enough to say God's going to do it in a way that we think is the wrong way to do it. Um, I think any time you spend with a mission organization that's on the ground doing work makes you lose all your presumption. Um, when we go on our mission trips into the city and we see how people are really doing work with real people, suddenly it, it hits you that there are no simple paradigms. There's no simple way for the kingdom to happen. And so if our hope is based on this obvious jingoistic way of making everybody suddenly better and fulfilling this great commission, we'll fail as soon as we do something. And as a warning to ourselves, if we hear a sort of simple solution and we think that's true, it's probably because we're not on the ground ever trying to make it happen. Because as soon as you're on the ground, it's going to fly in your face. Um, the thing I was thinking of as a sort of means by which to 
combat this presumption, despair, guardrail that we have to avoid is that I think God calls us to do just a little more than we can. And by that, I mean in a real situation with real people, with real problems, where, it is, where we're facing with not yet. We're faced with things aren't the way they should be. And we know God wants to transform them. We think about what we're able to do, and then we just try and do a little bit more, more than that because we assume that God's involved in it. right? Because if you do exactly what you can do, if you're just doing all the things that are in your own strength, that's your project, not God's project. That's not God restoring the world. That's you creating your own little empire. And maybe what God calls us to do is just step out a little bit more than we're comfortable. And that's where God meets us. Or God doesn't, and like the alternative version of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we burn up in the fire. But, but I prefer to do that, or I think God would at least prefer us to do that, than to just take tiny steps that we can accomplish. Um, baby steps is a delightful idea in What About Bob? But it's really not a great version. I'm dating myself with that movie. Um, but it's not really a great way for us to do mission. Because then we're just maintaining control the whole time. We never let God do what God wants to do. We can never see the miraculous. We can never see the restoration that comes through the power of the cross and through the Holy Spirit if all we're doing is the things that we can do. It's good to take first steps, but it's good to take first steps that are just a little bit more than we're able to do. Um, Because we have faith in a God who raised Jesus from the dead and who wants to restore the world, we can hope that God will do a little bit more than we're able. Um, And I'd like to say... All Souls has done that a lot. I'd like to say there's a number of things that we've done that have been that, that have been stepping out in faith. Um, And I I think that's true. Um, And I'd love for us to continue to find more ways in doing things that are a little bit more than what we think we can do. Um, Because that's where God shows up. Or doesn't, and then we figure out what to do next. Failure's part of it. and we have any questions or comments sort of about this idea? Yeah. Just an illustration that's coming to mind of what you're saying there about doing a little more than you can do. Um, the little engine that could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll be the little engine saying, I think I can, I think I can. Yeah. That, and, that's, and you press forward and you discover that, that maybe God's going to help you do one more step. Um, maybe God's going to help you do a little bit more than you expected. You, you set a... You set a picture. You let God's kingdom enliven your imagination. And you start walking that way, saying, God, this is going to happen. And then he kind of meets you along the way. That's what I've found when I, I'm, I'm being faithful. And i found that oftentimes when I'm just doing exactly what I can, I get my own mediocre results. It's never bad, right? Like if you do a little bit on your own, it's never a bad thing. But you're not allowing God to do the kind of things that he can do. Yeah, Rich. Is this the guy who, who, who stole my stuff? Is this like, okay. Spoiler alert, this guy steals my stuff. No. Yeah. Um, so in 2009, um, Joy, was, Joy was out of town for a week doing a class at, at Honey Rock at the end of her Wheaton tenure. Um, I was out with a friend. I was watching a playoff game, hockey, of course. And then I came home to my apartment. It's like 10 o'clock at night. 
And there's some people outside my apartment who are um, working on a car. And so I check and see how they're doing. They seem to be fine. Uh, I think they maybe needed a jump, and so I jumped their car. And then the one guy asks, like, hey, we don't have any gas in the car. So, so you know what? Can you help us at all? I was like, you know, uh, the one thing you learn when you're at Moody is you never give people cash. You always sort of help them out with what they want. So if they want money for food, you go buy them a meal and sit with them. So I said, sure. Um, yeah, I can help. Let, me, let me drive with you guys to the gas station. I can do that. And then somehow, like, one of the guys ended up in my car to, like, help give directions instead of me just following the other car. But I was just following the other car anyways. So that was a little bit weird, but okay, that's, that's fine. Um, it, people who are more cautious than me would have little red flags going off. But whatever, we're just going to keep going. So we go to the gas station. I, I buy gas for, for the car. This, I'm a, this is where we're going to part ways. I, I sort of talk in the car a little bit about God. I feel like my evangelical training tells me that I need to talk about the gospel here. But I'm doing this because God loves them. It was a fine conversation. It, uh, no, no sort of clouds rolled away in the discussion, but it was fine. And so then he says something about how they're really lacking in groceries. And I was like, let's go do that. Let's do this. So we drive up to the Jewel. And at this point, I'm sort of out of my like, normal map of where I know things are. Um, and that's fine. We're, we're just going to keep driving. I am, at this point, you know, 24 years old and feeling great. Let's do this. I'm invincible. So we go to the grocery store. And I go in, and this guy's wife is in their car. And just he and me and this guy go in, and we buy groceries, and we kind of buy some staples. I feel like I bought, like, pasta sauce and diapers, things that felt like staples to me. So that felt like, okay, this is a, a normal thing. And so then I feel like, okay, I should maybe be able to keep in touch with this guy. So I kind of start fumbling my wallet to grab a, a business card. And I can tell that he sees it and then, like, asks if he can have my number. And I feel like, dude, you just saw me pull out the card, all right? Let's not play this up more than it is. Um, and I, I give him my, my card, and he's really appreciative. And we get out to the parking lot, and suddenly, like, everything's fine. He's like, okay, see you later. And, like, they get in the car, and they go. And I'm like, well, that was a strange encounter. I hope God used that. And the next morning, I found that there were several things missing from my car, um, which I assume were taken while we were in the grocery store. It might have been taken the night after. Um, the guy, <laughs> the, the story continues that in the months and maybe years later, this guy contacted the church a couple times. Um, someone gave him a ride to and from the city a number of times. All of it seemed borderline sketchy all along. This, to me, is a series of actions given in hope because by no means did I have a clear pathway from this guy to long-term aid. And that's clearly a best practice, right? Like, I, I practiced zero of what anybody would consider, like, good, safe, healthy practices that I should do again in the future. Um, on the way back, I called Joy, and I was like, I had this great encounter. This strange guy drove with me. We went and bought stuff. She's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I left for one week, and you're putting yourself in mortal danger. Um, but I still hope that that man in his continued encounters with our church, that that stuck somehow, that God ministered to him. And I, I told the, the youth group after I realized stuff was stolen, I said, I don't regret buying him gas or groceries. Like, the, what, what are you going to do with pasta sauce other than eat it? What are you going to do with diapers? Like, th this is not, I did the best practices in that I didn't give him straight cash. He still got gas and groceries, which he needed. And, I mean, Jesus says that's, that's what you do. Was my oh, my, and one of the things that was taken was my Bible. And you feel like, all right, that, can't, that it was in like a, a briefcase, and he, I think, 
all right, well, they got a Bible. That's got to be a win, right? <laughs> I don't know. And I, and I think maybe part of the hope is saying, I can't be sure of how this is going to affect things. That I don't know if this has long-term affected this man or not. Um, there's a number of people who call the church for, for help, and we're able to help them in various degrees. And sometimes it's things like paying for electric bills or things like that. Um, and it seems like my, my, sort of, my, my sort of bleeding heart nature just hits at random times. Sometimes I get the voicemail, and I'm like, we, just, we're, we don't have the finances for that. And sometimes I think, like, oh, yeah, the church can do that. Why not? I'll just drive down to wherever you are so I can get you a check. Like, it's, it's often convoluted. And I think that God shows up in those moments, and I think that God blesses those people. And I pray that they have some sort of long-term dividends. But when we get the pictures of the kingdom that is to come, it's things like come and buy food without money. It's people who don't have a problem getting food. It's people who don't have problems of poverty. And so if for that one moment, a little bit of the kingdom showed up, that's a win. That's a win whether or not there's sort of a long-term trajectory for that person's life or not. Those little moments are always wins to me. Um, and I get an interesting story out of it. So, I mean, win-win, right? <laughs> Any more questions about that? Yeah. Yeah, because the, the point, if the whole purpose of my interaction with this guy, um, his name is either Bobby or Rodney. I'm really not entirely sure. He gave two different names on different occasions. Um, <laughs> another red flag, right? Um, I might have just misheard him the first night. We'll call him Rodney because that was the most recent name we heard. If Rodney, if, if my interaction with Rodney is all about me knowing that it ends well, then it's not actually about him and doing mission. It's about me having a good experience. My motivations are all about me feeling good afterwards. But if I've given this up to God and say, God, I think you can do something with this, then it doesn't matter if I get to see the outcome. I do the thing that is what I'm called to do, and I pray that God uses it, um, and then that's it. I'm struck by the, the sower of, in the field, Jesus' parable. It's, it's sketchy hermeneutics here, but stick with me. The, the sower... Th- sow seeds, and only a quarter of it actually grows. Three-fourths of the seed that he tosses ends up on ground that doesn't merit it. Um, And maybe that's what we're called to do, extravagantly giving, recognizing that maybe three-fourths of our efforts don't actually end up with producing great fruit. But our call is not to grow things, but to sow. So uh, maybe that's what hopeful mission looks like. It looks like, hey, this may fail, but God told me to do it anyways, so... Here we are. Yeah. You know, I, I've been thinking back to the uh, split that you laid out at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea that um, either uh, we're going to work in bringing in the kingdom, which in its extreme forms is kind of amillennialism that says things are going to get better and better and better. Yeah, no matter what. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Yeah, and, 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 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Rich. So at this point, what I want to... We've been talking a lot about, like, mission, basically. But the problem is, is that all these things sound good. Again, I'm falling into the trap of saying this is a good policy for mission. But the problem is, we may as a church say this is what we should do, um, but sometimes we feel like this. We just say no. And whatever hope is in front of us, we know we should have, but instead, I just want to stay in bed and not do anything. And so I'm going to hand off to Joy, who's going to be able to talk a little bit and fix that problem for us. Um, and talk about what do we do when we don't feel hope, um, when sort of despair gets in. So, over to you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> right. Uh, so there are times where we are living in the now, and there are times where it's not just us who gets to bring hope to people, but perhaps we are the people who need to hear the message of hope ourselves. Um, and that provides attention for us. What do you do when you don't feel hope? And you know that you should. What do you do? Uh, that's kind of a hard point to be in. And it's hard to do mission. Not all of, We're all called to serve, but I would argue that there are times where we need to be served ourselves in order to do that. Um, even as Christians, we have uh, our lives are not perfect. We will suffer. We will have struggles. Um, and sometimes it's, it's ourselves that needs that helping hand or that um, outreach. And so you can't just go out and spring out and do missions with this, God will fix everything, this is great. Because sometimes it's your own home that needs to be fixed first. You know, sometimes it's you who needs this message. Um, And it's really hard to hang on to that message. You know, Palm Sunday is the day where we uh, celebrate and, and we remember Jesus being welcomed in as a king. But if you think about it, I can recognize that Jesus is my king and I can sit there and say, but I'm really sick or I'm broke, or I don't have a job, I'm about to lose my house, I don't have a car, I don't know what's going to happen. Everything is crumbling around me. Where is this message of hope? How does that relate to my life? I know things are going to be made well. It's Martha talking to Jesus when her brother has died. I know you're going to raise him on the last day, but he's dead now. Okay? 
Um, and this is where it's really hard to maintain and to hold on to that hope. And we don't diminish that. You, you don't do anyone's service by saying that that's not a problem. Uh, as Christians, sometimes we have the Band-Aid solution where we want to skip all the way to the fact that in the end, everything's going to turn out fine. Uh, and you can see this when people come along, people who are grieving or perhaps uh, sick. The first thing, if, if someone jumps to the, you know what, God's going to make everything right. Well, you've skipped past all of my suffering, and I'm glad you feel better about comforting me. But you missed the whole walk of suffering. And this is why it's important that we understand that Jesus is king, yes, but we're about to see him walk as the man of sorrows, too. He doesn't turn away from sorrows. He understands that. He walks that path, and and we are invited to do that. So this is our struggle that we have to have, is the reality of hope, yes, hope still exists, but sorrow, pain, devastation, that also is very much a part of our lives. So um, full, you know, full kind of disclosure, this is going to tie into one of my favorite soapboxes, and it's prayer. I'm letting you know that now. So you're going to have to just kind of come along with me and know that. Uh, We talk about mission, but I think mission really has to have a backbone somewhere. And for me, at least, I approach that with prayer. So what do you do when this hope doesn't seem to match up with where you are? You pray. You pray. Um, We pray so that we can be clued in to where God is working in the world. If you can't see it, the first thing you do is you ask God to show you something good. If you are so low that you can't get out of bed, if things are so wrong around you, you say, God, I can't see you. Where are you working? Where are you working? Because right now it looks like I'm I'm not seeing it, right? So you ask about that. Um, And and prayer is the place that you can begin to, to ask for the things that you need. Show me. God, show me where you're working. Renew my strength. Renew my confidence in this because I'm not seeing it. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have all had a moment, even though we're all here as faithful believers, where someone, you know, if someone had asked you in one of the most challenging moments of your life, whatever that might be, if someone had asked you, do you really think that God is good? Do you really think that everything is being made right? Could you have answered yes without a shred of doubt? If the answer is no, that's fine. I would say no. I could not have answered that without a shred of doubt. My internal sort of Christian uh, beliefs would have said, yeah, I do believe that. (laughs) But the, the inside would have had this disconnect, right? That's an important mindset and an understanding that we need to understand when we encounter the world. The world sees this disconnect. It's not that people around us think that the world is so great, and that's why they don't believe in God. That's not the problem. It's just that they don't think he's the answer to that problem. Does that make sense? Uh, and so somehow we have to reconcile these things within ourselves. We don't do service to, the, to dismissing this uh, need for hope. Anyways, um, so prayer kind of invites us into this. We are called to pray and um, pray for things to to change. So the first thing that I think of with this is the persistent widow, right? Uh, In Luke, we get this great picture and the story of a woman uh, who has been wronged and has a really unfortunate judge who is just not doing his job. He doesn't care. 
He's only in it for him. And she sits there, and she just keeps going and pleading for justice, pleading for this. Come on, come on, come on. And finally, the guy just says, whatever, fine, whatever you need, take it, and just let's be done with this, because I don't want to deal with you anymore. And, and Jesus talks about how this is how we are supposed to pray. And I think that's a lovely understanding of it. Uh, sometimes we sit there and think of praying in this very calm and collected manner, like what we do during our service. Let's all, you know, let's say the Lord's Prayer together, and it's this lovely, quiet moment, and we're all praying, and everything's fine, and everything's better. That's fine. That, that is a part of prayer. But it's also just as accurate to say, God, when are you going to fix this? Do you see this? Do you see this happening here? So that's the part of prayer that, that we are invited into and given as an example from Jesus, this, this kind of story where it's uh, almost badgering. This woman is almost badgering. She's a nag. That's the story. She's successful because she pesters someone enough to get a result. And that is given as an example to us for prayer. So think about this. So if you're wondering, how do I hope? I would encourage you to start by asking God in prayer. So help me out here. What should I be doing? What should I be seeing as hope? Because I'm not seeing it. Uh, I always, um, autobiographically, I think that it's great. If you use uh, written prayers, that's wonderful. It's, um, it's okay to pray through the Psalms and to pray through different kinds of things. But I think that um, a lot of us need to have the reminder that prayer is a conversation ultimately with God. And sometimes you just got to get real. Um, if you've been married, think of it as the same way of, I think of it like this. Let's say if you were married, um, you could only have conversations by what you would find either quotes in a book or Hallmark cards. You could find a way to converse, but you would be limiting yourself in your form, right? The same way with the Lord in prayer. If you're only focusing on written prayers, uh, if you're focusing on the Lord's Prayer, if you're focusing on just scripture, that's fine. And yes, you can contain that. But goodness knows, you can also just use your words. And it doesn't have to be fancy or pretty. Yeah, Phil. It sounds like you're, you're, you're saying that in that season of life, it's okay just to jump right to supplication. Oh, absolutely. And. Well, I, <laughs> here's, here's what I'm going to say to you. You know, we like to have a process because we like to feel like we've gone through all the steps. If you're like me, I love a list so I can check it off. Okay, I've thought through what I've really done wrong. I confess that I sinned against my neighbor. Check, check. Okay, God, will you forgive me now? Here's the thing that's radical about that. The Lord forgives you way before you even get to that point. The steps are just for you. And yes, it's important that you confess those things, but I would argue that you can do that without such a methodical process. You can, you can get real with God because he's already 10 steps ahead of you. You know what I mean? So if you're in that mindset where you are just consumed by all the things that are wrong, don't be afraid to hear the comfort that's given. Confess the sin, but if your heart is already there, it's fine. Do you know what I mean? Uh, don't let the process get in the way of you interacting with the Lord, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Um, he would much rather have a real conversation. I encourage people that if whatever you're feeling, whatever you would say, whatever that uncensored bit is that's inside your heart, surprise, the Lord knows that. If your internal monologue is cursing and swearing and is so mad that you can't even speak, you're not hiding that from God. You might as well just say it to him. 
and at least open that dialogue so that he can respond. Where am I getting this kind of stuff from? Think about uh, Job as your example. If Job, and that's a wonderful resource, we shy away from Job because we're not comfortable with suffering, and it's awful to step into something and imagine yourself in that kind of situation. So a lot of people shy away from Job going, wow, that's a lot to deal with. It is. But if you dig into that, think about some of the things that Job says over and over again. He says, you know, I'm not going to despair in this. I can't believe this, but I want to talk to God about this. Yeah, I want to bring this up to you. He says it over and over and over again, and he doesn't sugarcoat things. And guess what happens? The Lord shows up, and he talks with Job. He doesn't berate him for saying, how could you talk to me like that, Job? How could you say those things? You know, you weren't really polite when we last spoke. Job gets his answer. The Lord shows up, and they have a conversation, and there is restoration. So this is where this model comes in. It's wonderful if you can do that, but I would argue that the honesty is there first. And if you're down and out, there is no shame, and there is nothing wrong with laying the cards on the table when the Lord knows your heart and your mind anyways. You've just opened up a dialogue of honesty. Mind you, I don't think that's the healthiest mindset to be in all the time, every day, all day, every day. I'm hoping that's not the only way you talk to God. But if that's where you're at, my goodness, start there. Um, so that's a good place to start. I think that uh, another way of thinking about this is um, oftentimes, if we are in a situation, it's really easy for us to turn our struggles, our despair, our frustration into bitterness or identifying other people as the problem that we need solved. Right? How many of you have done that? I've done it. I've done it, where instead of it just being a situation that's messed up, I've suddenly gone, oh, no, you know, it's not me, it's someone else, and this needs to be fixed, but it's not me, <laughs> right? Uh, pray for the situation where you don't see hope, but don't, don't think of the, pray for the situation, yeah, but maybe also pray for the person, and not just as a problem to be solved, but as someone who needs to hear the message of hope, too, as someone who is loved, too. Um, earlier this week, I had my son... Uh, my oldest said something that I was horrified by. And I don't know where he got it. Uh, he's, he's a great kid. But he was frustrated at his brother. His brother's trying to grab something from him, as, you know, a near two-year-old will do. And he was so irritated. He just looked at him and said, You are nothing, Simon. Nothing. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> right? <laughs> now I'm in the other room, right? He certainly didn't get that at home, okay? Uh, he certainly didn't get that message, but the idea, you are nothing, it prompted this conversation where I get to say, oh, no, 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 son, no, no, no. You don't get to decide who is worth something and who's not, or what's worthy and what's not. We believe that the Lord has decided we are worthy, and is it based on anything we've done? No. It's because God made us, and he loved us, so you don't get to say that about anyone, even if they make you mad, even if you don't like them, even if you disagree, it doesn't matter. The Lord decides that they're worth it. And that's the annoying part for us Christians, right? It's so frustrating. But I got to have this conversation with my five-year-old. It was like, wow, okay, here we are. That is so intrinsic. And I was like, I, I get where he was coming from. I get that. If I'm honest, I've had those conversations with, in myself about other people. Eh, it's not worth it. It's not worth my time. Not worth it but we don't get to have that choice. The Lord has chosen for us that it is worth it because I've said it's worth it. So um, 
you pray. If you can't see hope, you pray. And you be honest with God. And you tell him where you're at. And you ask to be shown things. You ask to be shown, where are you working? What are you doing to solve this? This is a shameless plug for intercessory prayer. But if you can't get there yourself, my goodness, we, we offer this at our church. Uh, after the 11 a.m. service, we have prayer at the foot of the cross. If you're a 9 a.m. person, that's cool. You can always tap me on the shoulder wherever I am, and I will go and pray with you. We have people who will pray with you. So if you can't get there on your own, call in for backup. That's what we're here for. Um, and it, we can help do this. This is, this is a joy and a gift to be able to help each other like this. So the next part is you just wait. You listen. You wait. And you see how God shows up. So annoyingly, when you ask for help and you ask to be shown hope and what's going on, it doesn't get to happen on our timetables. And that's really frustrating. <laughs> it's really frustrating to admit I'm at the end of my rope. I don't see anything good happening here. There's a lot of problems, and they're not being solved, God. And I'm asking you to show me where you are. And then it feels like crickets. Nothing. Nothing. Well, what else do you want from me? You wait, and you listen. And the other part of this is you act. You refuse to let yourself get drawn into an action because you're waiting on a sign from the Lord. So this is why it's important to have this undergirding of faith and what it is um, and how to live a Christian life. You take the next steps forward living out in faith, whatever that is, to the best of your ability. And you believe that the Lord will show up mysteriously somehow in that and renew your strength, renew your confidence in him, and point you in the right direction. Um, one of our household verses that we love is Micah 6, 8, right? This idea that um, he has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I would argue that that's a good framework for what do you do when you're stuck, when things don't seem to drive. Well, you love the Lord. You do justice. You do kindness, and you walk humbly until the Lord steps in and shows you the next right thing. Um, there's a lot of good in that, a lot of good that you can cling to. Um, there's an Anne Lamott quote. Do you have that, or is it something I read? Okay, so this Anne Lamott quote, I, I love her because she talks, she talks with realness about God, and she talks with realness and rawness. Not that you have to be perfectly autobiographical, but she gets what it's like to feel this loss of hope. And she's talking about this here. Hope begins in the dark, the stubborn hope that if you just show up and you try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. So you wait and you watch and you work and you don't give up. That's in it in a nutshell. Um, our faith enables us to work even if we feel hopeless. And you ask God to renew that for you, but you still step out in faith. You still step out in faith, and you still get to act, right? And that's a hard thing to do. But ultimately, our, our faith means that we believe that even if I'm not feeling it right now, even if I'm not feeling it, Lord, I still know that it's true. I want you to help me get past this, but, but I still know it's true even if I don't feel it. And so you still act, and you still live in that manner, and you don't give up, okay? Um. I think I've basically said everything that I need to say on this. I what time are we at? Five minutes over. Five minutes over. Cool. Um, okay. So I will, I will wrap up with this thought. I have um, – my grandpa is a great 
he's a very faithful man. Everything's very black and white with him, very strong in the faith. But he, every time you get off the phone with him or anything like that, what he'll say to you, you say, you know, love you, love you, love you, you know, that kind of thing. And his last thing that he'll say to anyone, whether it's with a handshake for friends or family or whatever, is stay sober. Stay sober. And at first I was like, okay, what's that about? It's not that, you know, he's against alcohol or anything like that. Not that kind of sober. What he's talking about is keeping your minds focused on this, this sober-minded thing. Uh, and, and this is First Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So for him, when he's saying stay sober, it's stay focused. Stay focused on your ultimate hope. Don't let go of that goal. Don't, don't let go of that. Even if it doesn't feel it, stay sober. Stay the course. And that's the encouragement that we have here. Even if it doesn't line up, stay sober. All right, we're a little bit over, so I need to go. But if any of you all want to talk about this, I'm more than happy to. So thank you all.